Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today I have the pleasure of having a conversation with a dear friend and colleague of many years, Dr. Mark Devine. He joined the faculty of Beeson Divinity School in 2008. He teaches in the area of church history and doctrine. He's the author of several books, Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again, and Bonhoeffer Speaks Today, Following Jesus at All Costs. He's written a brand new book, and that's what we're going to talk about today, Shalom, Yesterday, Today, and Forever. Dr. Devine, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you, Dean George. I'm so happy to be here. Now, I want to begin by asking you about this title, Shalom. Of course, it's a word we know a lot. Was this the original title of your book? It was. Uh, it, it really came, the interest in the topic came out of my engagement with the, the matter of faith and work several years ago and in exploring uh, how work fits into God's design and plan. It kind of drove me to the first chapters of Genesis and there I discovered not only that uh, work is a is a part of God's good plan for his creatures but that God is the original worker he's the creator he made something and the next thing I knew I was um really engaged in a, a richer and deeper uh exploration of the doctrine of creation itself more than than human work but i found that the word shalom ended up helping me get at what i w- thought i was learning uh because the word shalom uh its semantic range includes the meanings of peace of harmony and of prosperity and each of these uh helped me get at what i felt i was encountering in the pages of scripture not just in genesis but throughout I want to come back to the, to that word and to its implications that you're spelling out in this book. But say a word about this uh, project that you directed uh, from a foundation grant related to faith and work and how they're connected. Well, I uh, attended uh, Acton University and got involved with the Kern Foundation on this issue. I found myself very, um, I don't know, uh, dissatisfied with my own ability as a pastor uh, to address certain major dimensions of the lives of the people I preach to. Uh, most of their lives and of our lives are not spent in church. Uh, it's not uh, spent in Sabbath keeping. Uh, it's not in worship. And that is by God's own intention and design. Uh, in six days, you shall do your work. We think of the fourth commandment in terms of its prohibitions related to Sabbath keeping, but it really has a, has two commands in it. You shall do your work in six days. And so a major part of our lives is meant to be uh, expended in work, and it just opened up a whole area of exploration that I felt I needed to explore in order to be uh, a good steward of my position as a, as a minister of the Word of God and really address the needs of my congregations. Now, out of this grant, we had a connection with our friend Dr. Tim Keller, a pastor of Redeemer 
church in New York City, and we brought him to campus. He gave a talk. Uh, how does this project and how you've just described it relate uh, to Timothy Keller? Well, uh, like Keller, I want to uh, hear what God has to say to us about the ongoing significance of this, our lives in this world, this world uh, in the between time, if you will. We live between, uh, we really live in a lot of between times. We live between our expulsion from Eden uh, and the coming of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he's going to bring a place with him that he has gone to prepare for us. And oftentimes, I think in my own spiritual formation, my interest has been pointed maybe disproportionately uh, to the world that's to come. And Tim Keller uh, challenges us to recognize that God has a reason for delaying his coming. He's doing something now, and it's important. We're here in this between time for a reason. It's not only waiting. It's also waiting and doing and receiving and giving and relating. And so I think our projects overlap in that way, and in, in certain ways, Tim Keller's uh, writings have been a guide and an inspiration to me. And his focus on the city as a place where God is at work now in the world and our stewardship to be involved there. Maybe the, the sort of idea that you're um, tilting against here is uh, exemplified in the stereotype of the person who believed Jesus was coming back on a certain day in 1844 and went out to uh, upstate New York and found a tree and perch themselves on the limb of that tree waiting for the coming of Christ. Uh, and so you're saying be careful that you don't over um, uh, expect things to come in the future to neglect what is happening right now. We're told, I believe, that there is a future beyond this world and that we are strangers and pilgrims and resident aliens and exiles in this world, uh, because we need to know that in order to live as we were meant to in this world. And partly that means that we are uh, to uh, recognize that uh, the permanent and perfect redemption awaits, but it has started now. It's invading now. And that redemption scope is all of what our God made. He's not going to settle to uh, kind of escape with some disembodied souls and let the devil have the rest. No, he's, he came to settle us uh, into communities to enjoy the home he made for us. And he promises a new home to come that is not, uh, it's not the mirror image of what he made in Eden, but it is deeply related to it. And in the meantime, his interests still extend to all dimensions of what he made, not just to what is invisible or to some disembodied soul. He cares about it all. And that's why Jesus came and took on flesh and was raised from the dead and he healed the sick. Uh, these were the ways he demonstrated that he was the Messiah, not by teaching people to become Buddhist and not care about those things. Mm. Well, there is a, throughout your book, there's a little bit of a polemical tone. And you say at one time that 
this perspective related to creation in particular that you're emphasizing and incarnation, that this is needed today in the life of faith to resist certain ancient heresies which keep recurring in the history of God's people, even today. What are they? Well, they are Gnosticism, Marcionism, and Manichaeanism, at least. They are all creator-hating and creation-hating construals of reality and spiritual life. And I'm very pleased that, that these are viewed by the church from ancient times as, as heresies. Uh, and when we go down that road, we find ourselves, um, having trouble reading the Bible. That's what happened to Marcion. Uh, he hated the creator, uh, and the creation. He had some good reasons because of the suffering in this world. And uh, how could how, how could a good God allow yes, evil? Yes, whoever was involved in helping this physical world come into being, you know, seems to be an aider and a better of all this suffering. And so we want nothing uh, uh, to do with him. Uh, but then he found himself unable to read the Bible, and he manned up and just lopped off the whole Old Testament. He thought he could find a resting place in the New Testament because that's where it becomes all spiritual. And I think we use that word wrongly in the sense of non-material. But then he ended up not liking a lot of the New Testament, too. Because, again, there we have a Messiah who shows himself to be the Messiah, not by making people sick and making them like it because he can help them bear up, but by making them well. And he was a Messiah who had messy diapers. He sure did. And he, he came to to he came to redeem all that the Creator Made. And that's why the whole creation is longing for the revelation of the sons of God, because they're awaiting their own full redemption. And it's delayed, but we get glimpses and tastes here. And by the way, it's not just that our enjoyment of the physical parts of this world are impaired in this life. The so-called spiritual uh, goods and virtues, they're not what they ought to be either. Uh, our ability to forgive sins, to love each other. Those also await the coming world when we will know and enjoy them in their fullness and in their permanence. Yeah. Now, you're a theologian, so you've talked about Marcionism and uh, some of these early heresies and Gnosticism. Does Pelagianism fit in there anywhere? Pelagius used to be my favorite heretic because we, we have to thank God for the heretics because they get things so wrong, uh, so deeply wrong that they really help us to clarify what, what the truth is. I've just swapped out Pelagianism lately. He's in the hopper. He'll come back <laughs> up. But Mar- right now it's Marcion. I want Marcion to be the poster child for heresy because he <laughs> hates the creator and the creation he made. Yeah. Well, um, all these heresies are, as you say, making a point and helping us see in some ways the truth more clearly. Without them, we would be missing something in what is the true Orthodox faith. Let me ask you about one of the chapters in your book. It's chapter 3 in this book, Shalom, Yesterday, Today, and Forever, and it's called God the Homemaker. That's an unusual designation for the deity. Well, to answer that question, let me say a little bit about uh, uh, another dimension of the word shalom that was attractive to me. I'm using shalom as a designation for what life was meant to look like according to God's good creation. And what I find is that 
it involves three dimensional, three relational dimensions. Our relationship as human beings with our creator, our relationship with each other before our heavenly father, our shared heavenly father. And then the third dimension is the one that I, that I give more attention to in the book because I think it has been distorted and neglected. And that is the relationship between us human beings who are God's children before our God, our heaven, our shared heavenly father in the place that he made for us. Why is it that human beings are created last? Why is it that anything was made but, but, uh, human beings? Why were human beings made with bodies? Why do we wait in line? Because God's creative work is a homemaking work. He never intended to have and will never have. If he does, it'll only be an in, in an interim time that, that is not the full shalom. He never meant to have a people without a home. And the universe that he made, he made first so that he could settle his human creatures made in his image into that home. And when they sinned, the punishment and reverberations of that punishment went all throughout every dimension of creation. And so now what should have been fruit dropping into their hands and tending of the garden that was only enjoyable and productive, now it's turned against them. The relationship between Adam and Eve is now strained. The relationship between human beings and the creation and the God who made it and to whom it belongs, it's all distorted and twisted. But God does not at that point say, okay, I'll just settle for trying to save these these disembodied souls. No, he immediately attends to all the needs of his fallen sinful creatures, and that means providing them with clothes, providing with a place to stay, and promising to settle them into a home on this earth in Zion. Our God is a homemaker. He's a settler. Punishment in, involves expulsion, scattering, Exile, sojourn, pilgrimage, resident alienship. God uses all of these consequences of sin for his own redeeming purposes. But their goal is that these these unsettled states will be left behind. We're headed for where we started, in that sense, a settled state. Dr. Devine, is there any sense in which you can give credence to that common chorus of Christians who sing, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasure's laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Is that just sheer escapism, or does it have any meaning that we can grab all to for you? It can lead to escapism because everything good can be put to bad use. So, yes, we can become those who are we say too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, but we should say wrongly heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And the Bible has so much to say about how we are passing through. This is not our home. And it sometimes does contrast the kingdom of God with this world. But we also have other passages, and we, we love those passages. We, my, in my spiritual formation, we seize on those passages. But, but we also are told this, for God so loved the world. 
Okay, so what are we talking about here? We're to despise this world in its opposition and rebellion against the Creator. But we are to love this world as the object of His redeeming work. The whole created order is in the crosshairs of God's redeeming work. And the reason it has to be is because we're going to have, we're going to need by God's creation and have a home in eternity. And you know, some of this issue, this tension that we're talking about is related to the Greek word cosmos, which has two different meanings in the New Testament. The world which can mean the physical created order that God made and said was good in Genesis before the fall, and then the world order, the system that dominates the world, which is also depicted in the Bible very often as being under the control of the demonic, the prince of the power of the air. And the same word in Greek is used in both ways, and we have to be discerning as to how we exegete Scripture when it comes to the world. Yes, and the the limited authority that the evil one has in this world, he's doomed. That's what's doomed. Death is doomed. Tears are doomed. Crying is doomed. Sickness is doomed. Poverty is doomed. These things are doomed. And so uh, suffering is doomed. Suffering, I, I heard probably at seminary at some point, you know, in Jesus Christ, suffering is redeemed. All right. Suffering is put to use in the killing of suffering. But it's not redeemed in the sense of of being made a good the way the original created goods were. And so, for example, Jesus suffered in order to rescue us from suffering. He made himself poor to make us rich. I may suffer the loss of money so that someone else might not be poor. So what we're involved with here is not a transformation of suffering into a new good like other created goods. What we're seeing is the sovereignty of God to make that which is bad, put it to good use. And we're seeing something of the character of love. Love suffers in order to rescue others from suffering. But there will come a time in eternity when there's no more suffering at all. And God's going to be pleased with that. We're not going to be lacking something because none of us are suffering. Good. Now, you've talked about some of the ancient heresies, uh, Marcionism and Gnosticism. And, but uh, what would you say to somebody uh, who says we have today's heresies like health and wealth gospel? And aren't you just giving us a little sugar-coated version of health and wealth well, I do think if someone knows a little, hears a little bit about what I'm saying, this will be the concern. And it is, it is to the, it is those people I'm kind of addressing my, my message. The prosperity gospel, health and wealth gospel, name it and claim it gospel. These are heresies. They are not the gospel. Why are they not? Because the Bible does not teach that God intends for his children to be healthy all the time and wealthy all the time in the time between the times in which we live. He also teaches that we are not to pursue and seek these things. We are to seek the one who is the provider of blessings, which is not the, not the same thing. But the problem is this. The, the, the heart of the anti-prosperity gospel uh, crowd that, that I'm familiar with, number one, uh, they're wealthy. 
they don't realize they're wealthy, maybe, or they feel guilty about. It, but they are wealthy, and they also they're not they're not divesting themselves. They're not taking vows of poverty. They're not asking uh, anyone else to. The second problem is this: they hunker down in their anti-wealth, anti-money passages, and they think they're finished. But the prosperity folks have their passages, and I look at many of those passages in my book. But anyone who's familiar with the content of the Bible knows it's the tip of the iceberg. It's very clear in the Bible over and over again. Physical health and material prosperity are and are to be recognized and received as blessings of God. So work's got to be done. We have got to take seriously the passages that the prosperity folks prize and value. Give us one or two examples of that. Well, in in Deuteronomy, Moses says God gives you the power to gain wealth. Moses even tells them, here's what's about to happen. You're going to be settled into the promised land. And it's not going to be a simple lifestyle you're going to have there. You're going to, God is going to heap blessings upon you. You're going to build big houses, it says. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's even going to have pomegranates. Pomegranates have always been a symbol of fertility and wealth and luxury. Even my own son a few years ago, uh, fell in love with pomegranates and we had to have a family meeting and make him aware of the fact we're not a pomegranate family. <laughs> he can have as many pomegranates as he can buy. And, and so, and it, it, the other thing that's fascinating about it is Moses said, when you, when this, when God heaps these blessings on you, you're gonna, you're gonna say that I got this because of something that's good about me, because I'm good, because I worked. And you would think, well, why is God aiding and abetting something that he knows is going to stir up this idolatry and, and thinking that you got this, this health and this wealth by uh, some merit that you have? And here's the reason. The reason is these are blessings. The fact that we can and do make bad use of them does not change their status as blessings. What redemption does is put things right, not lop things off as the vows of chastity and poverty and obedience sometimes suggest, and then turn that way of pursuing Jesus as a top tier of, of, of discipleship. No, wrong. What uh, role then does you know, this whole tradition of asceticism, you mentioned the these vows that are taken often by people in religious orders, uh, but it applies to the whole Christian, the whole call to discipleship in some ways is a call to leave that, uh, leave your nets and follow me. This leaving stuff, where does that fit into your construal? There's much to say about this. Positively, we can say this, that the whole witness of the church that affirms the biblical teaching about self-denial, about being separated from this world, uh, about uh, knowing how to be abased and how to uh, abound, about uh, the warning of uh, the love of money, this whole tradition can, in, in, at its best, it can affirm uh, these things. Uh, and and so uh, there's a way in which it works itself into what's needed here in discipleship because of the fall, because of the fall, because of the problem and the threat of idolatry. But deeply woven into Scripture is this. We give up things that are good, even sacrifice things that are highly valuable, perhaps our own lives, 
perhaps our son, like Isaac. Why do we do that? Because there is a hierarchy of value in the Bible. And that which is of the highest value can, should, we should give up anything of lesser value to gain what is of higher value. God. So that's why Abraham is rightly the model of faith. He was willing to give up even Isaac. But in, and, but sacrifice in the Bible is the path to retaining and keeping what you give up. He who loses his life is abolished forever, and that's good. Now God alone is left. No. He who loses his life will save it. He who tries to save it as though it's his and not to be received as a gift from God will lose it. The heaven that we're told is coming, it's not a simple lifestyle heaven, is it? We're going to walk on streets of gold. We're going to be healthy. We're going to have everything we need. It's not going to be anything simple about it. It's going to be multifarious and spectacular. Amen. But that's then and not now. And now is the time where what what God does is God in his wisdom and in his providence blesses his children with glimpses and tastes of these kinds of things. It's not meant for us all of, all of the time. Sometimes what is meant for us is mainly suffering. And I'm not happy about that at all. But sometimes that's what is meant. And so if... But sometimes God blesses us with health and wealth. And when he does, we should receive them as that. Be good stewards of, of those things. And not eschew them and treat them as only enemies that will tempt us to idolatry. But make good use of it. There's a time for everything. There's a fascinating passage in First Chronicles 22. David has planned the temple. But he's not going to build the temple. Solomon's going to build the temple. Why can't David do it? He can't do it because he spilled so much blood and he's involved in so much war. And he's going to bring Solomon, whose name, the spelling of it, is very close to Shalom. And it says, I'm going to give him Shalom. Solomon's going to get Shalom. And so it's going to be a time of peace and God's going to heap the blessings on. So in the in this in-between time, which is the the valley of the shadow of death, woe unto us if we imagine that that God prompts us to seek to lay hold of our physical health and our wealth as the end-all and be-all. No way. We are to pursue God and let the chips fall. But woe unto us if we play this game of imagining that we can, as the wealthy people we are in the West, uh, despise the prosperity gospel, keep our dental plans, and imagine that we've gotten the message of the Bible right. We need to become good. We're rich. The Bible, we need to go back to the Bible and let it teach us how to be rich. Is there ever been a time when Christians needed more to understand how to be rich? Because we are. But we're going to have to get out of our denial first and admit that we're rich. And we might be taught something. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast is Dr. Mark Devine. We've had a lively conversation about his brand new book, Shalom, Yesterday, Today, and Forever, just hot off the press from Whippenstock. I commend it to you. You'll find it as interesting and provocative maybe as our conversation today. Thank you for this work, and thank you for your good scholarship 
and your contributions here at Beeson Divinity School. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Dean George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.